You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. So today, we kind of start a shift in the, the narrative here and we're moving toward the crucifixion of Jesus. Chapter 26 begins that shift for us. Um, and picks up more of the narrative. Today, we're just going to focus on, even though we're looking at verses 1 through 29, we're just focusing on 17 through 30 um, this morning. And those first few verses, we'll weave them in uh, to this passage. So hear the word of the Lord. So on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for, for you to eat the Passover? Go into a city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And when evening came, he was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to surely say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat it, this is my body. And then he took a cup and after he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, help us, Lord, to um, once again, as we ask every week, understand what you're saying to us through this word, Lord. Open up our eyes, the eyes of our heart and the ears of our heart. God, help us to hear and see the wonderful things that are in this book. God, we continue to pray for for Josh and Andy and the team there, Lord, Storyline Church, as this church is beginning to have a public launch here in a week, God, help them in all the preparation and the work that they need to do to get there. God, I just pray you would encourage them if they are having doubts and questions and discouragement. Lord, I just pray that you would just help them to see that you're at work and you're the one that will see this church and see it grow and develop and mature and become a beautiful presence in that community. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the questions that uh, for some reason my family, especially my mom, would ask me quite often when I would call and talk to her uh, back before she had to be in a nursing home, she would, uh, she would ask me, always ask me like what I had to eat. Like what did I have for dinner what did I have for breakfast? What did I have for lunch? I don't, I don't know if it was a mom thing or just a concern that maybe I wouldn't eat well. I don't know, but this became a common conversation starter for us. And 
the weird thing about it is I find myself doing the same thing. It's like, why am I doing this? Joseph, our 19-year-old, came in this weekend uh, from college, and we were having dinner Friday night uh, around the table, and and I found myself like fighting back the urge to ask him, what has he been eating? It's like, I am not going to ask that question because it's just a really weird question. Like, why do I care what you've been eating? And even now when I go see my mom uh, uh, in the nursing home, it's obviously been hard over these last 12 months. We just basically see each other through a window. One of the questions I'll ask her is like, hey, well, what'd you have for lunch? I, I don't know if I just don't know what to talk about or what it is, but it's, it's, it's kind of in me. It's, very, very weird. The reality for all of us um, is that most of our meals are forgotten, right? Really don't remember most of our meals. I mean, if you guys would come to me and say, hey, what'd you have for lunch Monday? I mean, I probably would tell you I had like a sandwich or something. The only reason I remember that is because that's pretty much what I have every Monday or every lunch. Not just on Mondays. I don't have like specific things on Monday. It's just basically what I have for lunch all the time. I mean, I just... The majority of our meals and majority of our meal, my meals are, are things that are absolutely forgotten. And at the same time, they're necessary, aren't they? Uh, the truth of the matter that it's, it's like thousands upon thousands of meals that have gotten us to this place, haven't they? Even though they've been absolutely forgotten, if we had not eaten those thousands upon thousands of meals, we wouldn't be here today, right? We, we have to have food to live, to sustain our life. But the majority of those meals are absolutely forgotten. Every week when we gather together, we have a meal. I mean, it's not a meal to fill us up, obviously, but we have a meal together. Some of you would would call it the Lord's Supper. Some of you came from traditions where you'd call it the Eucharist. We call it primarily the communion around here. My question for us, um, there's several that's going through my head right now, but what, what are we doing when we take this meal? Or, or better yet, what, what, are you, what are you doing? What's going on in your mind, in your heart? As week in and week out, we take this wafer, we eat a wafer, we take this cup, and we drink some juice. If we stopped observing communion... What difference would it make in your life? That's not a question to make you feel like weird guilt or bad about it. I, um, I think we, it serve us well to kind of have some honesty with us, you know what I'm saying? Because probably for the majority of us in this room, we take this meal week in and week out without giving it a whole lot of thought. We just kind of do it. So I do think it's a good question for us to ponder. If we would stop observing communion, what difference would it make in your life? I came across this quote this week from a guy named Peter Ladehart in his book uh, talking about the Lord's Supper. He says this, it's pretty profound, kind of challenging, convicting for me as I've been thinking about this quote. He says, the Lord's Supper is the world in in miniature. It has cosmic significance. Within it, we find clues to the meaning of all creation and all history, to the nature of God and to the nature of man, to the mystery of the world, which is Christ. 
Though the table stands at the center, its effects stretch to the four corners of the earth. When I first read that, I was like, wow. I don't know if I've had that kind of thought about communion ever. That's pretty, pretty weighty. This meal that we're doing every single week is carrying that kind of meaning and weight. A meal that most of us probably forget about on Mondays. But I would argue it's absolutely essential. So here's what I want to do this morning. Um, Not very often do you get a chance to kind of like just camp out a little bit on the Lord's Supper. And so we're looking at those verses that are describing for us the narrative of what happened in the Last Supper, which gives us some understanding of what we're to do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so um, the Last Supper is held during this festival called Passover, which was a yearly celebration that the Jewish people uh, participated in, an enormous celebration where they remembered God's great rescue of their people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And the reason why they call it the Passover is because in the 10th plague, they were to slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the frames there so that the angel death would pass over them if they had the, the blood of the lamb there. And so every year they would, they would flock to Jerusalem to, to celebrate this meal. And that's exactly what's going on here. That's in the midst of this. This is what they're celebrating. But Jesus changes the whole thing. Pretty profound what he does here. And in this, I, I want to say there are three kind of invitations that Jesus is inviting us into every week when we take communion, when we observe the Lord's Supper. And, and I'm not saying that we need to make sure we're doing all three every time we gather, but I'm asking us to at least have one of these three that's kind of in our minds and our hearts when we gather together and, and take this meal. And specifically, Lord willing, maybe this is kind of what we think on, reflect upon as we get ready to take communion here in a few minutes. So the first one is this, this first kind of invitation that I see in this text, that we um, are invited to examine our lives. And I know what what you're thinking. If you were with us last week, that was a point in one of your sermons last week. Why are you bringing it up again? Didn't we exhaust this idea already? Well, maybe in part, but the reality is just like me, uh, you forget my sermons on Monday. I forget my sermon on Sunday evening. Amen. And so, uh, and I do think in this text, uh, one of the first things he's inviting us into is to examine our lives. Every time we gather and we're getting ready to take communion, he's inviting us to take a look inside to search our hearts, ask the Holy Spirit to do that, as it says in Psalm 139, and we got, just got done singing a few songs ago. Notice here that um, uh, in, in verse 21, in the midst of them eating this, this Passover meal, Jesus uh, sort of drops a bomb on them, you know, like lands something on them that, that probably took their appetite. I don't know if you've ever been at a meal where that happened. I've been in a few of them, you know, I've had meals before where members will say, hey, you know, we wanted to take you out to dinner just to let you know we're leaving the church. Like, okay, well, that's, 
Like the whole meal just like gone from me. Now I've lost my appetite. I was in youth ministry for 20 plus years. I had many parents take me out to dinner and say, hey, did you, did you know that this happened at such and such an event? Like, oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, thanks for taking this nice place. Can we just go on to McDonald's, right? And just, you know, let me know about that. Well, like we can all resonate when, when there's something landed on us that has a way of taking our appetite. And that's some of what's going on here in verse 21 when Jesus says this, while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Then he goes on in verse, verse 22 and and I know the, the thing is, is that we have insight into this passage of Scripture. So if you read all of 26, we know that this is Judas. Like, we know that. Like, he's already gone to the religious leaders and said, hey, I'll, I'll give him to you. Just give me some money. How much money will you give me? So we already have the insight of who this person is. But none of the other guys have any idea what's going on here. That's why they say in verse 22, deeply depressed or distressed is the better word there. Each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. And so, so the question you ask, and then who is he talking about? You know, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. And, and in our mind, I think most of us probably, you know, look at this scene like a movie or whatever, and then the movie scene has them, you know, kind of like, you know, panning into the, the, the bowl, and there's two hands in there, like, dipping the bread, and then you pan out, and then all of a sudden you see that it's Jesus and Judas. It's like, yeah, that's so awesome. No, that's not at all what happened here. Not at all. Because you got to remember the meal in this day, and I got a picture of what, sometimes when we think of the Lord's Supper, we think linear, right? We think like a, a table, like we see with Leonardo da Vinci. Well, it's, I know this is a really weird picture, only one I can find that was fair, fairly clear on Google, all right? But this is, would be kind of like a meal in antiquity where they're laying down, they're, you know, their heads toward the, the table, and they're resting on their arm, and their, their feet is, you know, toward the wall. It doesn't seem very comfortable to me, but obviously in this time, that's what they did. And they had a common bowl that they would dip their bread in, all right? So, you know, they'd rip a piece of bread off and they'd all dip this bread into a, a common, common bowl here. And so with that in mind then, uh, when he says the one who dipped it in the bowl, the, the reality is, is everyone did. They all did this. Not just Judas. Every single disciple dipped their bread in the bowl. And even like, this is kind of side note, even the conversation that, that Jesus and Judas have, the rest of the disciples have no idea what's going on there. They, they, don't, they don't hear this conversation that goes on here. So, so the, the point that Jesus is trying to make when he says the one who has dipped the bread in the bowl is he's trying to get his disciples to recognize and examine in their lives that they have the capacity to portray him. That what, what is inside of them is also the potential to betray him. It's not just Judas. Like he's trying to say, like, I'm wanting you to see something that I see in you, but you don't. I mean, their response when they say, surely not I, Lord. I mean, you can take that in one of two ways. One way it can be like taken in a kind of like an anxious, worried way, you know, oh, surely not I. I mean, I, I know I, I've got the possibility of being able to do that. I see my sinfulness in my own heart. Like, surely not I, Lord, you're not talking about me. So there's, the, there's this one way of like a worried anxiety kind of way. The other way is more confident. Surely not I. You're not talking about me. 
I think it's the second one. Well, where do you get that law? Well, because in the very next verse, Jesus tells Peter that you're going to deny me. And what's Peter say? No way. No way. Over and over and over and over for three and a half years, Jesus is trying to humble his disciples and show them how weak they really are. And over and over and over, they overestimate their spiritual maturity and underestimate their need for Jesus. So in this simple, one of you, one of you is an invitation from Jesus to these disciples to examine your life. Do you see, do you recognize your capacity, the potential in you to betray me? And that's our invitation every single week when we gather together and have this meal. I mean, one of the questions that I have often over the last 10 years, because I grew up in a tradition where we would have kind of like the invitation at the end, which isn't bad. I'm not against that. I think it's really great and It has its place where the pastor would come forward and invite those that want to put their faith and trust in Jesus or they want to rededicate their life, recommit their life, whatever. And some places have a tendency to abuse that. And we would sing all seven stanzas of Just As I Am and be exhausted. But we got to have one person come down before we're closing the deal, right? So that's kind of the abuse of it, you know. But there is a place for it. But but here's what I always hear from, where's the invitation, Lyle? Where's the invitation that you have and your service. And I want to say communion is the invitation. Every single week, we're inviting you, not, not me. Jesus is inviting you, even from this text. It's what he's trying to do with the disciples in this Last Supper. I'm inviting you. Examine your life. Search your heart. You have the capacity and the potential within you to betray me. I see it. Jesus is saying, but Do you? Look, we're not examining our lives every single week in order to make us worthy to take communion. Jesus is the only one who's able to make us worthy to take it. We are examining our lives so that we would become more and more aware of our daily need of the grace of God. Love how one pastor puts it. He says this, those he, would be Jesus, obviously, that's why it's capital H, those he loves, he continually tries to show them their capacity for sin and their need for sheer grace and absolute mercy. Why? To make us feel bad about ourselves? To make us feel horrible about? No, until we see how incapable we are spiritually, we are incapable of receiving God's grace. We all, including myself, have a bent to overestimate our own spiritual maturity and underestimate our capacity for sin and our need for Jesus. I love how Bruner says this in his commentary. 
Jesus was willing to ruin tonight's dinner by this unfestive declaration of betrayal. Why? Because he wants future dinners celebrated under optimum conditions. And those conditions exist whenever there has been sincere examination to see whether our lives are in danger of betrayal. So each week we gather together and we take communion and it's an invitation from Jesus for you to examine your life. Are you in Christ? Are you a a Christian? Why? Why would you say you would be? Look, I don't think Jesus is expecting you to be on fire for him 24-7. That's absolutely impossible. There's no way you can do that as a human being in a fallen world with a fallen body. So I'm not saying that every week you've got to examine, am I on fire? Sometimes you just need to say, Lord, this is where I'm at. I'm being honest with you. I'm numb. I'm struggling. I don't feel you. I don't experience you. Every time I read the Bible, I don't see anything. Like that's the kind of honesty the Lord's inviting us into. And he's not like freaking out about it. He's not going, okay, no, it's like, okay, okay. There's space, there's time. We can work with that. So each week, we're invited to examine what's going on. What's happening in you? Secondly, we remember, and if you grew up in church, this is kind of like a, a softball, I guess, right? And, and, I, and I realize, man, there, there's a lot in communion and what's going on there. We, we don't believe that this actually, the bread turns into the actual body of Christ, nor the, the wine or the juice turns into the actual blood of Christ. We don't believe that that's the case. Uh, we do believe there's, a, there's an important element in the remembering of this. And there's even more going on that I fully can't understand and comprehend when, when the body of Christ comes together to observe communion together. Something that's happening because we're, we're involving not just our minds, but also our taste buds, right? We, we're tasting something, all right? And I'll get to this in just a few minutes. So, so yeah, there's, there's more that's going on than remembrance, but at the same time, it's not less than that. It's not. And it's, and it's important for us to think about like, okay, then in, if I'm to remember, then what am I remembering, right? What, what, what is it that I'm, like I'm being intentional and casting my gaze toward or reminding myself of? And, and what we see in this text is that I'm remembering uh, the death of Jesus is what I'm remembering. This is what's at the forefront or what this entire 29 verses or 30 verses are framed around. And I'll show you, go home and read the whole, you know, 30 verses later on. But at the very first of the chapter, Jesus predicts his death. Like we're going and I'm going to be crucified. And once again, the disciples are clueless. He goes into uh, the house of a, a Simon who's a leper. And there's a, a woman that comes and breaks this uh, expensive perfume and jar of oil over him. The disciples are going, this is a waste of money. We could have given it to the poor. And, and Jesus rebukes the disciples. says, no, no, this is a very beautiful thing. Well, why is this a beautiful thing, Jesus? Because this woman is preparing me for my burial. There it is, talking about his death. In this, you see 
um, Judas going and saying, hey, I'm ready to portray Jesus. So that's alluding to the very death of Jesus. And then you see these elements that Jesus uses here, bread and wine, which were common elements within um, uh, this Passover meal. But the unique thing about this is that he doesn't talk about the unleavened bread and explain why it was unleavened bread, which is what they would have done in a Passover meal. Well, it's unleavened because it was in haste that we had to leave, blah, 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 blah. He doesn't do that. He says, what? This is the bread. This is my, what do you say? My body. And it's been broken, which is a metaphor for his death. Then he takes the wine, right? You see this in verses 26 through 28. He takes the wine, he takes this cup, and he doesn't explain to them that this is a representation of the lamb that was slain, the blood that was poured on the... No, what does he say? This is, this is my blood that's been poured out for many. And that, that word poured out for many, if you'll see, it's also uh, in the Old Testament, it's a reference for a violent death. So, so in the, the framing of this passage, you see that, man, the focal point is on the... The death of Christ. I'm to remember the death of Jesus. And here's the kicker. So even if that's not enough, here's where it really is. What's not there? It's not just what is there that shows us that we are to remember the death of Christ. There's something that's missing. The lamb. <laughs> he doesn't talk about the meat. That's a really important part of this meal. I mean, it's huge. Like, no Jew in this time could ever think about taking the, observing the Passover meal without the lamb. It's the, it's the center part of the meal. Why, La? Why is the, the lamb so important? Because the tenth and final plague was the death of every firstborn son. And the only escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. Well, what was that, Lyle? Namely, you had to slay a lamb. And then you had to put the blood on the doors as a sign of your faith in God's merciful provision. Any Israelite who failed to do this, this wasn't just, you know, if, the, if this wasn't like just the Egyptian people, if the Israelites failed to do this or they decided to trust in their own pedigree as God's people or some kind of, you know, moral attainments were tragically and bitterly disappointed, meaning the death angel cannot pass over the Jews simply because they were Jews. In every home in this time, someone will die under the wrath of justice. In every home, there would be either a dead child or a dead lamb. And the only way to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. And that was a lamb. That's why the lamb was at the center of this Passover meal. And it's not there at the Last Supper. Why? Why? Because Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. He is the greater substitute. He's the one that would die for our sins and absorb the just wrath of God. John the Baptist, even though I don't know if he fully understand all he was saying here, but man, he was putting something together when he said this in John 1, He says, behold, you know, look, get your eyes up. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world at the, at the heart of the story of the Bible at its turning point is another meal, the, the Last Supper. It's a, it's a celebration of the, of the story's central act, and that is the cross 
of Jesus, his death. In essence, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying my death is the central climactic event toward which the whole story of the people of God and the history of salvation has been moving. Every other deliverance by every leader, every other sacrifice, every other prophet, priest, king, and hero have all been pointing to this night. This is the climax of this story in all of history. He is about to deal with evil and sin and death once for all. So, so whenever we observe communion, Jesus is inviting us to remember his death, and not just the event, but the effects of his death that then provide for us this relationship with God the Father so that we can be known and loved and our, and our sins completely forgiven and be declared sons and daughters of this wonderful, amazing king of ours. This is, this is what we're setting our minds to. This is what we're remembering. Not just trying to remember a silhouette of Jesus or or whatever. No, we're thinking about the death of Jesus and the benefits of that death. I don't know if this makes any sense to you as I've been thinking about this whole idea of remembering. I, I think there are um, sort of different levels of re remembering, meaning this, that if you forget this, it's not going to hurt the relationship that much. So if I go to Walmart and I forget milk, right, and I come back home and I let Kathy know that I forgot the milk and she kicks me out of the house. I guess a little bit of an overreaction, amen, right? There's probably something else going on in the marriage. It's not the milk, right? It's like something under the water. But if I forget an anniversary, that has a pretty big impact on the relationship. So follow me. By me, we're remembering yearly our anniversary and celebrating that has a way of serving the relationship. You follow me? It has a way of deepening our intimacy, our growth, our oneness. Me forgetting about this special date, this anniversary, could sever the relationship. Now look, I know all illustrations break down. You can't do like everything there, all right? But just, just kind of follow my train of thought. By us remembering the death of Jesus when we gather together, and when I mean by remembering the death, I'm talking about its benefits for us. When we do that, then it has a way of serving our relationship with him by deepening our love, our gratitude, our thankfulness that I've been forgiven, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done. That I've been brought into this family. I'll never be forsaken and never be left out. That I'm loved. I'm cared for. It has a way of, of deepening our intimacy, our love, and our oneness with him. And this is what we're invited to every week when we take communion. We examine our lives. We remember the death of Christ and its benefits. And lastly, and this is where we'll land, we long 
Or another way of saying this, we anticipate. Look what Jesus says here in verse 29. I didn't make these kind of connections, you know, or maybe the Lord just kind of renewed it in my own heart as I thought through this. But look what he says in verse 29. But I tell you, this is Jesus saying this, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So notice what, what Jesus is saying. This, this last supper here is not just for us to look back on, right? It's also um, making us look forward. It's kind of leaning us into the future to another banquet that is promised to us in Isaiah 25. So, so, so Jesus is picking up this prophecy that Isaiah said in chapter 25 where he says this, and on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. This is, this is a, what they call the messianic feast. This is, this is what we're leaning toward. This is what we're moving forward for. And, and Jesus is making this connection that I'm, I'm not going to eat this or drink this until that day, until we are together again in the new heavens and the new earth. And we, we have this feast. I mean, this is a side note, but when I first read this, it's like, man, I got to I got to acquire a taste for wine because there's some wine going on in this feast that we're headed toward. But, but here's what it's saying in this feast that Isaiah is talking about is, has already begun. This is what Jesus is saying right here, that this, this is the beginning of the end and the end that all of us are going to who are in Christ is headed toward this massive feast, this, this beautiful buffet of food that we will eat in the presence of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And this feast, listen to me, it's not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. It's really going to happen. Like we're gonna eat amazing food, right? In brand new bodies, in the presence of Jesus. This is what we're, what we're going toward. And every time we gather and take communion, we're anticipating that day. We're, we're longing for that day when we will be able to see him face to face and eat this massive, beautiful buffet of food. I love how Tim Chester talks about this in his book called Meals with Jesus. He says this, what we call the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the Lamb's Supper in Revelation 19 and also I would say in Isaiah 25. It is the beginning of the feast. We eat with Jesus and his people in the new creation. It's not just a picture it's the real thing has begun in a partial way. We eat with God's people. We eat with the ascended Christ present with us through the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper is to be a meal we earnestly desire to eat. And we approach with anticipation, and here's our, here's our word, with longing, with excitement, and with joy. Now look, I totally get it. These little cups are a horrible foretaste for the kingdom of the feast that we're headed toward. Absolutely horrible. Can I get an amen, right? I mean, they're little styrofoam wafers and the NyQuil tasting things, whatever. I mean, who knows what we're putting in our bodies? And you guys only have to do it one time a, a day. I got to do it twice. So I got the double chance of getting cancer or whatever the stinkest stuff is, Right. But here's, we're just doing the best we can with the pandemic, right? But, but here's where our imaginations need to come in. Like, yes, this is a, a really poor taste, right? But there is coming a day 
when we will be around this, this, this feast, this real feast, and Jesus will be in the center of it, and we will see him face to face, and we will no longer have to examine our lives anymore. We won't have to remember his death anymore. And we won't have to long for this day anymore. It'll be here. And each time that we gather together, not only we examine our lives, not only remembering his death, but we are also longing, longing, anticipating for that day when he comes back and we get to enjoy this feast together. So this is what we're going to try to do this morning. Um, I know with COVID, it's created a lot of challenges with communion and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it, it has allowed us to kind of rethink post-COVID how we're going to do communion. And so today, we're just going to try something a little different other than just sitting in our seats and working through it. We're, we're going to have you get up. We've got five tables here, all right? We've got two in the corners, and then we'll have one right in the center. And we're going to try to do this as safe as possible, okay? So if you feel really uncomfortable doing this, man, you can just wait till everybody gets done and then you can go to a communion table and, and receive the cup. But this is what we're asking you to do, to kind of pick a table, space yourself out, and then maybe two or three of you go to the table and just wait. There's going to be an individual there that'll go through kind of the, the communion verbiage where they'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then we're asking you to take that communion cup Go back to your seat, spend some time, examine your own life, spend some time, reflect upon the death of Christ. And whenever you're ready, take communion. And so one of the reasons why we're, we're, we're doing it this way is, is that as best we can, we're trying to just like help us see that this is a family meal. This isn't just about you and Jesus. Like we are brothers and sisters in Christ because of what the death of Jesus has done. And so just in a small snapshot, right, real small, we're going to gather around that table, see one another, receive the elements, and then go back to our seats and take those, all right? And while you guys are doing that, I'm going to talk to people online just for a few minutes. You might be hearing me talk. You may not hear me through the house speakers, but I promise I'm not talking to myself, haven't gone crazy or nothing. But I just want to address those that are online and, and help them participate and be a part of this. I think sometimes they feel like they're the, you know, the, third party just looking in on what's really going on. I want to engage and bless them that have not been able to be a part of us in person uh, since we've been doing this since March. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then after I get done praying, when you're ready, you can go to one of these five different stations. Um, and then uh, if you do not feel comfortable doing that, you can wait till everything kind of calms down and then you can go uh, and receive the element there. And then as you're doing that, I'm going to address a group of people online. So let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.